Please turn with me to Galatians, the book of Galatians, chapter 2, and starting in verse 11, Galatians 2. Hear God's word for you. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I posed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks and praise for this word this morning. And Lord, we ask that you would be at work, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, that you would open our eyes to see your beauty and the glory of even all that we've sung about and confessed of the blessedness of justification in Christ. Lord, may we see that. May we know that. And Lord, so would you open our eyes and our ears. Lord, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight and, and, and just work this morning. Fill me with your spirit. Do this work, Lord, for your glory and for all of our good and our joy. In Christ's name, amen. I don't know how many of you listen to podcasts, but I'm, I'm a fairly avid listener. do so when I ride or when I'm driving. Um, and one that has been all the rage lately is titled The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Um, some of you may have no idea what I'm talking about with that, but it's the story of Mars Hill Church in Seattle and how it grew to be and became a massively influential church in one of the least Christian cities in the nation. And then how it fell apart in the blink of an eye. Actually, on Apple Podcasts, when I looked this week, it was listed as the 21st most popular podcast, and at one point in time, it got up to third, not just in the religion category, but of all podcasts. It's, it's been highly influential. It's, it, it's, it's ahead of so many others, and it's been a fascinating listen. And, and with all podcasts, I've got my beefs with it, but it's been helpful in seeing how critical it is to have a healthy church culture. You see, certainly an unhealthy leader and a structure can severely damage a congregation. 
But there is also need for a growing and healthy congregation, a, a culture that's built on what is good and true and beautiful, that's built on Jesus. And folks, this is nothing new. We, we know that this has to be there for it. And actually, back to the Belgic Confession, it was produced in 1561, and it sets forth in it the, the marks of a true church. What, 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 is, what are the things you are to look for for a true church? And we're given great insight into to what to be aware of and to look for in the church. It says this, it says, the church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use, use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church, and no one ought to be separated from it. There's important concepts there, the pure preaching of the gospel, right use of the sacraments, church discipline, that, that, that Jesus is acknowledged and, and, and seen as the only head of the church. Those things have to be there in the life of the church. But there's more to look for if you want a truly healthy church. And the confession actually continues on with these words. It says, as for those who are of the church, we can recognize them by the distinguishing marks of Christians, namely by faith and by their fleeing from sin and pursuing righteousness once they have received the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. They love the true God and their neighbors without turning to the right or left, and they crucify the flesh and its works. Though great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their lives, appealing constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of the Lord Jesus, in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in Him. I think that's a beautiful description of church members. And I think it all stems out of one thing, and that's believing and understanding the gospel rightly and thereby living accordingly. Believing and understanding justification. The Apostle Paul knew this very well. And he was a man willing to do whatever it took to ensure that not only was the gospel not compromised in ministry, that the churches were led rightly, but also that the fellowship of the church was guarded and promoted in the right manner. So we've been going through this short series on the church and learning to re-engage and the necessity of re-engaging what the church is about. Today I wrap it up. We've looked at both the church's home, uh, home as, as worship and discipleship and fellowship, and then the church's mission that, that we are to proclaim the gospel boldly to all the nations. This morning, though, I want to talk about something that I don't think we talk about when we talk about the nature of the church. It's often neglected, and that's quite simply the culture of the church. What is the church like? In particular, I want us to see what it is that will, will, will certainly damage church culture and what it is that will promote a healthier one. We're going to look it's an easy outline, the problem and the solution. So I think you can remember those things, the problem and the solution. And from this, I hope to draw some implications so that we see the practical importance of getting the gospel right, not only in our minds, but in our hearts as well. So look now at verse 11 again. 
But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, one of the first things we got to figure out is who's this Cephas dude? Because that's not a name we hear a lot, but Cephas is the same as Peter. It's just another name for Peter. So he's talking about Peter, and, and he did something so egregious, so, so patently wrong, that the text says Paul opposed him to his face. And folks, this wasn't some whimsical thing. Paul didn't have a bad breakfast all of a sudden, and he thought, I'm just going to be a jerk today and go oppose Peter. It, it, this was conviction-level issues for Paul. Romans 12, 9, he wrote, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. And Ephesians 5, 11, he says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. See, Paul abhorred what Peter was doing at that moment, and so he exposed it. This is the responsibility of one who loves the Lord. Paul knew that what was happening could not be allowed to stand in the church if the church was going to survive. The text says that Peter stood condemned. This signifies that he was, he was blamed, blameworthy. He deserved it for what he was doing. One commentator said Peter was to be blamed or condemned, not in respect of his person, but of his example. It was his behavior, his example that was condemnable. So what was it that Peter was doing that was so utterly wrong that, that Paul would actually call him out in public? Verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So prior to the arrival of these others, Peter had regularly been eating with Gentile believers. Now, why is that such an issue? Why would that be a point of contention? Well, truly it isn't, but it, it, because it was the right thing to do, but not all viewed it that way. There were Jews and, and certainly some Jewish believers who still considered Gentiles ceremonially unclean. They were characterized as sinners. You see that in, in verse 15. They were not the covenant people of God, and they were also unclean because, quite simply, they ate unclean food. But Peter had been eating with Gentiles for very good and solid theological reasons. You see, with the coming of Christ, the distinction between Jew and Gentile was broken down. The dividing wall uh, of hostility was removed. Ephesians 2, 13 through 16 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So in Christ's work, he broke down this this barrier, this dividing wall that's there. And not only was that true, but Peter actually had his own personal, very vivid experience that illustrated this. In Acts 10, it's recorded a story of, uh, of a man named Cornelius, and he's praying, and, and, and in his prayer, he's, he's, a, he's a God-fearing Gentile, and in his prayer, he hears, send to Joppa for a man named Peter. 
And nearly at, at a similar time, Peter is having this vision. He, he goes into a, a dream and he, and he sees this sheet coming down and it has all types of animals on it and, and he hears the words, rise, Peter, kill and eat. At first, he didn't understand that. And so Peter responded with the fact, hey, hey yeah, I have never eaten anything unclean in my life. I've never done it. And then in Acts 10, verses 15 and 16, it says, And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And Peter's perplexed by this, but as he is, there comes a knock on his door. And three men, three Gentiles are there, and they tell, them, tell him of their master Cornelius, this man who had this vision. And the following day, Peter and some of his companions went with those men back to Cornelius' house. And when he arrived at the house of Cornelius, this is what happened, verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, "'Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him.'" And Peter goes on and he proclaims the gospel clearly, and the Holy Spirit actually falls upon these Gentiles, these new believers in Christ. And Peter and his companions end up staying with Cornelius for a number of days, and certainly in that time, I'm sure they ate together because he knew that there was, there was not that dividing wall of hostility any longer. And Peter was criticized for that. He was criticized by what is called the circumcision party, those who believed, those who came out of the Jewish tradition, Jewish believers in Christ, but they believed you still had to be circumcised. You still had to follow many of the religious laws in order to be saved. But at that time, Peter stuck to his guns, and he said, no, this is what happened. This is, this is the truth. Yet in our text, something is different. Because it says certain men come from James. James was kind of the, the, the leader of the Jerusalem church. And just because it says certain men came from James does not mean that James sent them, that they had the authority of James, or that necessarily these guys were even part of the circumcision party. They just came from Jerusalem. And, but when they came, it says Peter drew back and separated himself. He pulled away from the very people he knew it was good for him to be with. He, he held himself aloof from them. One commentator wrote, The words describe forcibly the cautious withdrawal of a timid person who shrinks from observation. He did this out of fear. He feared these men and his reputation in their eyes. He, he switched his focus from the fear of God to the fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Fear of man lays a snare. And folks, this isn't actually that new for Peter. This fear of man think of Luke 22, 54 to 61, as Jesus is led away and he's on trial. What happens? Peter denies the Lord three times, the first time in front of a servant girl. So here again, though, fear drives Peter. It drives him to turn away from what he knew to be true. And folks, this can happen to any of us. And I would, I would dare say it probably has. 
Maybe we don't want to lose approval from someone. We, we don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to stir the pot in particular relationships. But this is damaging not only to us, and that's not good, but when we do something like that, it can cause collateral damage. It doesn't just damage ourselves, but it can damage those around us, those who know us. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Folks, this is pretty massive when you think about it. Peter acted hypocritically. He was insincere, and it led to others doing the same thing. And the withdrawal that they all took part in as they, as they drew back was not out of theological conviction. It was actually in spite of theological conviction. It was because of fear. John Stott wrote, he, being Peter, still believed the gospel, but he failed to practice it. His conduct did not square with it. He virtually contradicted it by his action because he lacked the courage of his convictions. Peter knew that what he was doing ran counter to his inner convictions. I mean, think about this. Not only did he know what Christ had done, but he had that pers very personal vision and experience of seeing that we don't call the Gentiles unclean. And in doing so, he was pretending. He was hiding his real beliefs, and essentially, he was a play actor on stage with a mask. That's hypocrisy. And folks, we hear that term all the time, don't we? Oh, you people are just a bunch of hypocrites. <laughs> but just because it's used often doesn't mean we ought to lessen the severity of it. You see, Peter was a leader. Barnabas was a leader. And that made this even more destructive because Peter did lead others astray in his false actions. And again, we all do this. We are all hypocritical in our own lives, and we cannot slough it off as no big deal. Hypocritical living paints a false picture of the God that we profess to worship. It gives a false picture to the world around us, to those we know. And here's the sad reality. With hypocrisy, we know the truth, but other factors at that time push us to act in ways contrary to knowledge and professed belief. You see, there are certain things in our lives that are apt to override what we say we believe. And those things come to the surface, and at that point in time, they are actually held more deeply than the gospel in our lives. You see, I believe that there's a bit of a hierarchy in our belief system. And what we see as the most important, the thing of greatest value at that moment is the thing that will guide us and direct us. And so that brings us to verse 14, folks. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? His conduct was off. 
It was, it was out of step. It did not square with the truth of the gospel, as the NASB puts it. His actions were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. And this is vitally important, folks. I, I cannot stress this enough. The purity of the gospel is to be guarded. Paul understood that. Even in this book, we've, we've already seen it vividly. If you'd read the, the, the letter up to this point in Galatians cha- uh, chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, he wrote, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Folks, you cannot be a man-pleaser and a Christ-pleaser at the same time. It doesn't work. But he also, in chapter 2, we see how he fought the circumcision party. Verse 5, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. We cannot yield to those who distort the gospel. Because in the gospel is absolute life and freedom and hope. Paul was consistent. Paul was fierce in this, and it's why he called out Peter publicly, because public air damages. Public air will inevitably drag others into the same air. It changes the nature of the visible gospel that the church proclaims. It distorts the truth of the gospel. And we need to fight with faith and courage and tenacity that the gospel would not be maligned because of our own lives and our own actions Folks, it was clear, I believe, that for Paul, the gospel ranked highest in his hierarchy of beliefs. The glory of God was what he longed for more than anything else. But let's move on and look at verse 15. Here Paul begins again the argument that No one is justified, and justified is this idea of uh, it's being declared righteous, okay? Being declared righteous in God's sight. So no one is justified, no one is declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. The only way we are are justified is through faith in Christ. Verse 16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We are all sinners in the sight of God, and no man can be justified in his own self. Now, the whole point is our only hope is Jesus. It's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Then as we continue from verse 17, the point here is that Paul is saying that it, it doesn't matter if other people consider him a, a sinner for eating with Gentiles, for breaking these Jewish customs, because he cannot go back. Because what he would be going back to has already been torn down by Christ. We've seen that in Ephesians 2. And rebuilding it would be turning his back on the gospel. It would be turning his back on Jesus himself 
Because it is through Christ who fulfilled the law that Paul himself has died to the law, that all believers die to the law. Folks, the law, works of the law, were never meant to be a means of justification, but a means, one of the the primary means of the law is to show us our need of a Savior, for someone outside of ourselves to fulfill the law's demands. And because Paul's highest priority is God and His glory, he doesn't care about man's approval. He knows what Christ has done for him. And so Paul is able to stand up before his peers, and honestly, I think even at this time, before one who's really a superior in Peter, because he, see, because Paul's desire to justify himself is dead. It's gone. It's done with because he knows that it's only in Christ. He knows that he has been crucified with Christ. He longed for Christ to live through him so that that is his passion, to live by faith in Christ and the Son of God who, hear this now, to live by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. Those are precious words. Galatians 2.20, again, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, in in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Think about that. I have been crucified with Christ. Folks, we are dead to the law. We're dead to the condemnation of the law. We were grafted into the death of Christ. John Calvin wrote, The handwriting of the law, which was contrary to us, Christ has nailed to the cross, Colossians 2.14. Being then crucified with him, we are freed from all the curse and guilt of the law. He who endeavors to set aside that deliverance makes void the cross of Christ. This deliverance that we have is through our being united to Christ, spiritually in union with Him. All the language as you read through the New Testament, when you see phrases like, in Him, with Christ, it's language of union that that we have been united to our Savior. And this, this idea of, I have been crucified, even though death is not something we like to talk about, dying with Christ is actually what makes us alive. Christ is the one who lives in us, who animates our lives. He's the one who enlivens us. This this life in the body is lived for the Son of God who gave Himself so that we as believers could have life. He did it because He loves us. And then Paul wrote in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He again, he restates here, he basically says, I cannot go back to the law. Not as a means of justification. That would nullify the grace of God. That would be turning away from the work of Christ and, and, and pronounce it needless. And at that point in time, Jesus' death would have been cosmic child abuse. But instead, 
as it is, Jesus' death on the cross is the greatest display of love the universe will ever know. And that greatest display of love is for his people, who if you are in Christ, you can say with Paul, who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, Calvin put this well. He said, there is great emphasis in this expression for how dreadful is the ingratitude manifested in despising the grace of God, so invaluable in itself and obtained at such a price. For if we do not renounce all other hopes and embrace Christ alone, we reject the grace of God. We have to renounce all other hopes. Folks, listen. Grasping justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is absolutely essential. It's absolutely foundational. And veering from this truth in those hypocritical times and in all those other areas will dramatically affect your personal life. And if the church veers from it, it will dramatically affect the life of the church as well. So as I think about wrapping up this series on re-engaging in the church, all that I've talked about before, worship, what, what a joy it is to come together and worship. What a, what a joy for fellowship and, and, and for discipleship to, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and then mission, to be able to proclaim this message of salvation and hope to the world. I long for our church to love those things. And not just to love them, but to see them grow more and more, to see them be more and more a reality, to engage deeply in them. But listen, I really believe that that will only come, and it will only happen if it flows out of a life lived by faith in Christ. Where Christ in His glory, the gospel is the highest thing in your hierarchy of belief. It ranks highest. It's, it's that thing that directs your actions in each and every moment of life. And that's hard. Realize that. We will not do that perfectly. And that's the beauty of being able to repent and ask for forgiveness and to find refreshment and satisfaction and, 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 and joy in Christ. In a God who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What a joy to know that when we betray our hierarchy that we have truth to go back to. We have a Savior who's there. Folks, this is, as I said, it is so easy. It is so easy for us to slide into hypocrisy. And this is why we need the gospel lovingly pounded into our thick skulls every single day. We need the beauty of Christ put on display. So I, th I think true and beautiful church culture can happen, absolutely can, but it can only be found and only will last because of the work of Christ in our lives. So, so think about this. Think about the opposite in some ways. If we live in a framework 
or in a theology or in a culture that, that defaults to and is operated in self-justification, which is the default mode of the human heart. If we live in a culture that, that is that way by our works and our rituals and etc., our culture will absolutely be toxic and unhealthy. You won't want to come. And if you do, I guarantee you're going to be wearing a mask. There will be a rampant performance mindset. And with that, there's no safety, there's no vulnerability, and there's no grace. There will be a lot of covering up, a lot of what a friend of mine called brand management. You got to manage your own persona, you got to manage your brand. Folks, just, just think about this. Imagine for a moment you're the Gentile believer when those certain men came from James. And Peter, who had been eating with you and having a great time of fellowship with you, just backs away and has, wants nothing to do with you. That hurts. That says, I don't want anything to do with that. But then all of a sudden, Paul gets up and says, whoa, Peter, that ain't right. You're not following the gospel. That's not how we live around here. As a Gentile believer, I'd be like, yes. Way to go, Paul. Thank you, Paul. It's, it breathes life into your very soul. If Paul hadn't have done that, I think the church would have fallen apart there. You would have had a self-justifying culture. Uh, you would have had separation. You would have had the haves and the have-nots. It would have been a place, you see, a, a place void of justification by faith will be filled with people who have to seek to justify themselves. And in that, when you have to justify yourselves, you will inevitably look for loopholes in the demands of the law. You have to, because you know you can't keep the law. Think of the lawyer who came to Jesus, and his question was, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus goes through and lists out the, the commandments. He's like, I've done all these things. And then he talks about love your neighbor as yourself. And, and what's the guy's response? Okay, well, who's my neighbor? That's what we have to do. We have to find that loophole. Well, okay, I'll, I'll love this half of the church, but that half, they're not my neighbor. That's not what we want. Folks, that's not good for anyone. Not good for anyone at all. Listen, I long for our church, and I hope you do too, to be a place where the broken, the hurting, the tired, the weary, the anxious, the worn, the, the sinful come and find rest because they come to the arms of a Savior and not to an environment of competition. And that will happen the more we all rest in the truth of our being saved in Christ alone, our being justified in Him. If we can live in that reality more and more, and, li and listen, I actually think we have a really good culture here. This whole message is let's excel still more. Let's grow more and more in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's grow in resting that, that our only plea 
is with Christ before the Father. And that's going to make a massive difference in our lives and the life of this church because when people walk through this door and they're just visiting, they'll know it. They'll know there's something different because it's full of people who are open and real and loving and kind and gracious because they know the truth of the gospel. Folks, I long for our conduct to be in step with the truth of the gospel. We can have all the doctrine right, and that's really important. Doctrine is very important. But does our culture reflect the doctrine we profess to believe? Because I've heard too many times of a church that's solid on doctrine and grace is a foreign word in how they live their lives. I don't ever want that in this church. I want this to be a place where we can cry with each other, where we can go to each other and say, I'm hurting right now. I I don't know what to do. I need Jesus. Can you help show him to me? I want that to be the culture of our church, not where somebody goes, I can't talk to anybody because they're going to condemn me. No, talk to people because they're going to put their arms around you and let you cry with them. That's what we long for, where we come before the throne of God above in Christ, and we come before that throne together, where we can hurt, where we can be joyous together, where we can rejoice in the God of our salvation in all things. Folks, let us live a life in step with the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, be at work in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirits. Refresh us. Renew us daily in the gospel, in your truth. Because I know that there are many, it's just even in this room sitting who they're hurting. They're experiencing difficult times. And they need a Savior. And they need a people who represent that Savior, who, who, who will not break a, a, a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick, but with tenderness and compassion will love and care for. Lord, let us be a church that love the sheep because we love the Savior. Be at work for your glory and truly for our good and our joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.